0: Thank you, Chad. Thanks for this wonderful opportunity that you've given me to finish up. Uh, I enjoy Chad. We are kind of partners in crime. So anyway, let uh, let's go before the Lord and ask Him to to bless this time. Heavenly Father, what a great privilege it is to to truly just to be in Your presence in this Sabbath kind of way as we set aside the things that we could be doing today to come and to worship and to hear from you and to sing and to pray and to be reminded again of who you are and to have our lives oriented around you. We are so grateful that you will not leave us empty, that you have called us together and that you will indeed feed us, that you will indeed give us exactly what we need for this day and for this week. And so we ask that as we look to your word this morning that that it would not return void, that it would accomplish the work that you desire in each of our lives. I pray that our, our thoughts, the way we think about you, would be corrected and brought in line with what uh, who you are, that wrong thoughts would be adjusted, that right ones would be enhanced. Father, I pray as well that our, our lives and our behavior and the way that we live as well be brought in line with who you are and that we would live our lives In such a way that would honor you and show you to be great and father our hearts and the things that we love and our affections indeed as well would be enhanced that they would grow that they would become aligned around who you are and your greatness there's many things that our hearts can go after and be drawn towards father today would you remind us again of that which is most worthy you and your kingdom and correct those thoughts and affections and loves that are wrongheaded and will lead us only down a road of destruction. And correct them and bring them in accordance with who you are. Would you do that this morning, in Jesus' name? We pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-five, we are we're looking at the parable of the the talents. And last week we began this process of looking at it, and this morning we're going to finish it out as we look at that. And as you turn there, just a reminder of what a parable is: a parable. It's a story that Jesus would tell, but not just by way of illustration, not just by way of keeping his audience entertained. They were a story that he told with a very specific purpose. And what he does with his parables are they give, he gives handles for us on the kingdom of God. He helps us understand what the kingdom of God is like. And in this particular one, it actually follows a parable of the ten virgins, this one of the talents, and both of them go together to give us handles on what faithfulness and readiness looks like as we await the return of the king. And so this is what this parable is about. This is what he is going to do. And we're going to look specifically this morning at the parable, the reward and judgment that comes from faithfulness or unfaithfulness. So verse 14 through 30, we'll read. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should receive what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, This this parable, along with the one that precedes this, really gives us a picture of what faithfulness looks like. I mentioned last week, and I think what's important for us to to re-look at this morning is this idea of the context that these parables are told. And it's told in this setting of 24 and 25, where Jesus is talking about the end times, the last days, that period of time in between his first and his second coming. And so what Jesus is doing is giving instruction to his hearers about what should comprise their life, what should characterize their life in between his first and second coming, awaiting his second coming. And we see that faithfulness and readiness and preparedness should characterize those who are waiting for him. And so that's what this parable is about. It's a challenge to us to consider what it looks like to be faithful during this period of time as we await his return. There's an emphasis here, and it's helpful for us to be reminded that our days have meaning. As we think about him returning That in God's plan, that there is movement in time, there's movement in history, that he is doing something, and his desire is to use us in the process of bringing his kingdom, in the process of building and expanding his kingdom. And so we get to be a part of that. And so what that means is that our days, our time, the capacities and talents that he has given to us, the opportunities that he gives to us, our opportunities to build his kingdom. And they have meaning, and we need to build upon that and make use of that to invest what he has given to us wisely. And that's what it means to be faithful, what he's given to us. He's called us to be his partners. What does readiness look like? Well, last week as we looked at the idea of these talents that's entrusted to them, we see two of the servants were ready to put them to work, that as they understood what they had been given, that they recognized that what the master was doing in a sense is saying, You are my partners in my work, and as I am gone, you will do and accomplish what I desire you to do. And so here, take this capital, if you will, take this money and put it to work for my good, for the good of my estate. And we see the two of them did that. They recognized the joy that would come from being a part of his work, of entering into the labor of seeing his estate, his kingdom, if you will, expanded, and we looked at our own lives, and we saw that God had entrusted each of us a great amount of capital, if you will, to be put to work for his kingdom, because a a talent, even though one is given five, and one is given two, and one is given one, is a lot of money to be invested, and it was significant enough to do something with, and so the call for us is to recognize this partnership with him, and to be involved in what he is doing. We see that the one servant, though, the one servant did nothing with it. He went and he hid it in the ground. And it, we recognize from that, it reveals to us that his interest, in, his interest in being involved with the master, he had no interest at all. He was not interested in serving with him. In fact, he saw the work and the risk too high. And so the best thing he could do would be to go and to bury this talent, this some $300,000 in our day age, that, that amount of money, and bury it in the ground instead of using it. And so, for us, we see that what God has called us to do is to take and to put it to use what He has given to us. Sometimes those talents, those opportunities that He gives to us are obvious, and it comes in the form of gifts and abilities that He gives to us. It's in resources that God gives to us that we are to use to build His kingdom, but sometimes they're not so obvious. And we looked at the kinds of circumstances that God might place us in that we would not choose to be in, and we saw that in those circumstances, God, by his sovereign hand, makes use of that as his capital to bring gain for his kingdom, circumstances that we would not desire. And so faithfulness for us is recognizing that we don't choose the talents that we have, but it's receiving what we have and putting it to work for his kingdom by his grace to make work of what he's given to us. This morning, we're going to look more specifically at the last half of this, really 19 on, and really we're going to look at what faithfulness looks like and the reward that comes from it. And then we will look at unfaithfulness and disobedience of the third servant and the harsh judgment that's present there. And while we should take great encouragement and motivation in a kind of way as we, as we see the words that's given to these two servants that should encourage us and should motivate us to live and to be diligent with God, what God has given to us, the last servant and the words to him and the judgment to him should challenge us. I've mentioned before that one of the, the key ways to understand a parable is to look at the surprise in the parable, and I think the surprise, if you will, in this parable is the end of it. When you see this last servant judged so severely by the master, it should be a surprise to us. Why would he be judged so severely for what he did? And so we're going to look at that and ask the question, why was that so severe, and what is it that we can take away from that? What, can, what will challenge us as we look at that aspect? But first of all, let's look at the faithfulness and the reward that comes from it. Verse 19, we see in the parable that this master has been gone for a long time and he returns. And he, at this point, he is going to settle accounts with the three servants that he's entrusted his estate to. So he, he calls them forward. Now, it says it's a long time. Now, we don't know exactly how long, but it was a fair amount of time that he was gone. And we don't know if he gave them any indication as to how long he would be gone. But the one thing we know about the two servants... That were faithful is that they were they were faithful for the entire period of time that he was gone. That they anticipated his return, and that anticipation, that expectation of his return, called them to be faithful with what they had been given. No doubt, there's questions that would run through their minds: Will he really return? And what will happen when he does return? But the thing that kept them focused during this entire period of time was the joy that they could provide for him. They recognized that what they could do for their master was to invest the things that he had given to them and to see them grow. And then in so doing, they were showing that they were ready and longing for his return. And so in this long period of time that they waited, they were diligent. They did not doubt that he wouldn't return. They believed it, and they've lived expectantly. Now, it's interesting, I think, and and you see that into these characters, into these individuals as it relates to us, they're not driven by fear. They're not driven by fear that somehow he would show up and they would not be ready, but rather they were driven by this expectation and a delight that as they were to work and to see whatever they had grow, that they would bring joy and pleasure to him. So it was not fear per se as much as the opportunity they had to actually bring him, him joy. And so he returns and he comes to settle accounts with them. And he calls the two faithful servants forward. And we see that they're eager to come forward and to display what had taken place with what he'd given to them. So they come and they bring it to him, and, and there, there's a sense of satisfaction even as they present it to him. Look what has happened. With the five you gave, here's five more. With the two you gave, here's two more. And so we see that each one of them, even though there were different amounts entrusted to them, the same work was done, and the same outcome, that they each doubled the amount that was given to them. As they bring, and so they both received the same honor and reward. The exact same phrase, if you will, the exact same words were given to each of them Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And what the master does, he commends them, he shows them honor. And to the degree that they valued that, they took great delight even in the words that he would give them, that he would honor them. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good job is his words to them. You have done well. Good and faithful servant, you have done well. You have shown your character. You have shown your faithfulness. You have been diligent during the whole time I was gone to put to work what I've given you for my kingdom. And look what has taken place. And he gives them this honor. But he also rewards them. He rewards them, first of all, with more responsibility. He says, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Now, I don't know about you, but somehow in my mind, maybe it's kind of this American mindset, that I would think that reward would mean less responsibility. That somehow, you know, you, you, you can have some time off. You know, you can kick back. You don't have to worry about doing any more work for me. You've shown yourself you can just kind of relax. But it's exactly the opposite of what he does. He gives them more responsibility. Of course, those who delight in working for him will delight in more work that he would have who delight in the responsibility that they take and to work that they would enjoy even more of what he would have to give to them. And we don't quite understand as we think about this in the terms of, of the new heavens and the new earth and when the kingdom is consummated, when Jesus shows up, and, and what is ushered in about the rewards that are there. But we know that there will be glorious rewards that we will receive. That there will be new responsibility that's entrusted to those who are faithful with the responsibility that was given to them during this age. That there will be something else given. And that something else that's given will be far greater than what's received now. But consistent with it. That if we enjoy working for him now, we'll enjoy in an infinite, gr- infinitely greater degree in that day and age. And so... There will be reward that we will enjoy. And there will be pleasure that comes from working with him then in the new heavens, and the new earth, after he returns. So he gives them new responsibility. But then he also says there's this offer to them, this call to them, to enter into the joy of your master. Enter into. So there's more responsibility, but then there's a greater taste of joy for them as they enter into that joy. Now the interesting is that the servant loved the work because they loved the master they loved what they did because they enjoyed the master and his work and they wanted to be a part of that and they enjoyed to see their allotment grow because they knew that it would increase if that's possible it increase and expand his joy as he returned as he would see what they did with what he gave them that he would enjoy that there would be a sense and that would grow and that would be expanded and that would indeed they would enjoy that all the more And so the joy of their master would be expanded, and they would enter into that. Now, as that relates to God, there's an aspect here that, that, that even as we tread on it, it's hard to even understand. But there's something very real that as we recognize that as we are faithful with what God has given to us, that the joy that he takes in seeing his work in our lives is expanded that in some way we bring to God joy and we expand his joy in us. We don't give him something he didn't already have, but in a real kind of way, we have the privilege through our faithfulness to see his joy expanded. Because one thing is certain is that that God's, his omniscience is not mitigated by his joy. Or let me put that, God's omniscience does not mitigate his joy. And what I mean by that is that Because God knows everything, and he knows what we're going to do, and he knows what the outcome is going to be, he knows what what we're going to bring to him on that day, and what will come out of that doesn't cause him to say, well, I already knew that. I already knew what you were going to bring, so it doesn't matter. That doesn't minimize or diminish the joy that he still sees and finds in the faithfulness of his children. It doesn't minimize that. It expands it, and we get to enjoy his joy in us. Our joy is to bring him joy And so it's the same with relationships we have, right? Those we love, we enjoy to see their delight increase, to see their pleasure increase. And so is the same with God. And so as His joy expands, so does ours. The greatest reward for God's people is God Himself. And the fact, the thought that we could actually expand it, that we could, by our faithfulness of what He has given to us, see that increase. And we get to enjoy and and step into that. It's an amazing thought, right? that we can actually bring a smile to the face of God through our faithfulness, through our diligence with what he has done, that we can bring pleasure to him. It reminds me of the, there's a illustration that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity as he describes uh, a son who buys a gift for his father, but he goes to his father and he borrows the money. And then he goes and buys the gift and he brings it back to his father that there's pleasure taken in the Father, even though the very gift that was brought to the Father was paid for by the Father, that God still delights in what we bring back to him and show to him, even though it was from what he has already given to us. And so we see our joy increased as his is increased, as he delights in us. So we see that we had a, we had a, a part to play in that from what he has done in our lives. So what do we do with this idea of joy in the, The reward that we receive as we think about our days. Uh, First of all, we need to recognize and connect again what God has given to us, the talents and what we do with our days, with the mission that he's called us in his kingdom to see his kingdom grow and to see it expanded. We need to see our lives through the lens of this parable, through the lens of this reward, through our faithfulness. And what happens is it should cause us to ask questions about our lives. It should cause us to ask questions about the talents, if you will, that God has placed in front of us, the gifts that he's given to us, the opportunities, the resources. Instead of just using them for whatever purpose that we would deem necessary, we would ask the question, God, what do you want to do? What is it that will bring you glory? What, what is it that will expand your kingdom? Now, the answers to those questions are oftentimes not easy. We don't know the answers and there's no real formula, but we least need to ask the question we recognize that God has given us something and calls us to do something with it, we ask him, what do you want us to do with what you've given to us? What does it look like for us to bring honor to you, to see your kingdom expanded? And so we count and we look at our days and we count our days and we look what fills them and we ask, is this a good thing? Is that a good thing? Is this better? Is that better? Should I be doing this? Should I be spending this money? Should I be spending this time on these things? And even though again, the exact answer sometimes we wrestle with we need to we need to ask the question how do we best spend our time what will truly bring him expand his kingdom what will take what he's given to us and see it grow and it changes our perspective it helps bring clarity to our days and what we do and what fills our days and it'll help even adjust the actions and what we do and how we spend our time it's a reminder that our days have purpose and we're not just to spend them but we're to invest them at the same time We need to remember that there will be an accounting. There will be a day where we stand before him and he will put on display all that he's given to us. And we will have to say or demonstrate or show what it is that's been done or accomplished with those things. And so we will stand before him. Now, it's interesting. I don't think what this means is that we go and completely change everything we're doing now. Not necessarily that everything we've been doing, we stop doing, we start doing something different That's not necessarily the answer here. We might want to do that. There might be some adjustments or slight adjustments in the course, the way what we do. But it will bring some course correction in our lives. It will adjust to some degree. It has to. It will cause us to say yes to some things and no to some things. And that's what it means to look at what God has given to us and to seek to invest it in this way. And it will cause that. There's a story that's told about Martin Luther that it's from a good source, I suppose it's true, but at least it will serve as a point for us. Martin Luther was apparently one day hoeing in his garden, and a friend of his comes, and and, and in the course of talking with him, says, if Jesus were to return today, what would you do? He asks him the question, and Martin Luther says, well, I just keep right on hoeing. I keep right on doing what I'm doing. And, of course, the point is that this is what I'm supposed to be doing now. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. Now, if someone were to ask me, and I'm sitting just vegging on the couch watching television, I think I would say, well, I'm at least going to turn off the television. But the point is, isn't so much what we're doing. It's asking the question, is this bring glory to God? Is this something that will expand his kingdom? And it will bring adjustment to our course. So we need to ask the question. And again, I think the world's idea is that what you have is yours, and you can do whatever you want to with it. Why ask any questions at all? And God says, no, 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 no. Everything you have is mine You need to ask the question. I will guide you. I will give you what you need, the wisdom you need to do. You need to do. We need to ask the question. The second application from looking at the reward and and faithfulness, as we look at the the passage and this idea of talents, Jesus gives us a parable with, with a strict monetary unit that can be calculated. Okay? And that one has five talents, and he says, I've yielded five more. It can be calculated. So he gives us terms in the parable that have a concrete value. Now, the problem that that presents for us is that as we think about spiritual capital that God has entrusted to us and spiritual gain that we're called to bring out of it, it is not easily calculated by us. In fact, it's almost impossible for us to calculate in any kind of definite terms what we have or what's accomplished with it. So it presents a problem if we're trying to do the calculations ourselves. And the fact of the matter is we can't. We can't put any kind of quantitative terms on what we've been given nor what comes out of it. And the beauty of that for us is it's not our job. It's not our job to count what we have or what's been accomplished. Our job is to be faithful with what we have and to allow him to do the accounting to allow him to do what needs to be done. So faithfulness for us isn't counting what do I have and what am I doing. Faithfulness is, is just taking what we have and doing the best with it by his strength and by his power and allowing him to do the calculation for us at the point in time in which that is necessary and not to count because oftentimes the things that are most valuable, that are most important cannot be calculated. We're not able to calculate those things by our own measures, but he can But there's a haunting question that rests on us as we think about this idea of calculating. As we look at our own lives and we recognize God has given me something, and I I, I want to do something with what He has given to me. And The question is, what have you done with what He has given to us? And there's a healthy aspect to that question. There can be a sense in which it rests on us if we're trying to count what we're doing with what He's given to us. That can be a, can be detrimental for us spiritually. And this is what I mean. For some of us, and many of us, and probably all of us at different times, it is difficult to look at our lives and see anything of value at all that comes out of it. There are those seasons that we come across in our lives, and we look at it and we ask the question, is anything good at all coming from what God has given to me? Is anything happening at all of value for the kingdom? And we wrestle in those points and those seasons, and our eyes strain to see anything accomplished Sometimes we get glimpses, but oftentimes those glimpses hardly enough reminds us that our eyes are not able to see what God is doing. Our eyes, sometimes he allows us to see, but oftentimes we're not able to see that. And so what we need to do is learn that there's a sense that in our faithfulness, we're able just to rest, to rest in God and what he has done in our lives and to see that there's a kind of beauty that he sees in our work, even in our faithfulness, whether we see it or not. He sees it as we attempt to bring to him and to place it before him and to cause it to work, that he will bring something good out of that. And as he looks into our lives, he sees that. He will commend us for that, whether we see it or not. So ours is not to see and to look what's happening. His is to calculate. Ours is to be faithful and to be diligent, but to rest in the end and the the one who will account for what's been accomplished, what's been given, and trust that he will do that. And so we see there's a picture here of reward that we each have, and we, want, we long to hear the words of our master, well done, good and faithful servant. And there will be reward, and a great chunk of that reward is just the joy of entering into him. But we see the, par- the parable ends with a severe kind of picture of judgment for the unfaithfulness of this third servant. And this judgment is not because he gained too little with his investment, it's because he did nothing With his investment. When you look at this in verse 24, you see this interaction between the servant and the master. Verse 24, he also had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And you see this interaction is completely different than the others. And the way that he understands his master is to be a hard man that he is callous and his interests are only for himself. And we see here not just an absence of zeal or effort, but we see the presence of animosity. We see the presence here of apathy that he really doesn't care about the master. In fact, he is angry at him. There's a sense of he doesn't like him. He doesn't really know him. And so as a result, we see his response to go and hide this in the ground. And we see his words are filled with blames and excuses, He says that I knew you, you you're a hard man. And there's this sense of gathering where you didn't sow and reaping where you didn't sow, this idea that exploiting, you exploit, exploit our labor for your good, for your benefit. What good do we get out of this? He says, what good is it in working for you? You take the benefit, you're exploiting our labor for your own good. And we see that his actions are spiteful. And we might put in our day's terms, he was passive aggressive. He was passive aggressive. He did nothing in an aggressive kind of way. He says, There, I'm going di- to bury your treasure in the ground. But to show you how I feel about you, I'm going to do nothing with the talent, with the gift you've given to me. Essentially, I want nothing to do with you, and this is what I'm going to do with what you've given to me. And then we see the judgment of the master as he comes and he says, says, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money. As the bankers at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. And we see that he identifies him not as good and faithful, but as wicked and slothful. That is exactly the opposite of the others who are faithful and diligent, that what we see in him in the sense of wickedness, that he is useless, that he has taken something good that's been given to him and he does nothing With it, He is of little value to the master because he did exactly the opposite of what he was called to do with what was given to him. He's malicious, not in an active way, but in a passive way. He goes and he buries something terribly valuable. He puts it in the ground. He's not using it in the way that it was intended. Essentially what he's saying to the master and to himself, he says, it's easier to do nothing than to do something. It's easier for me. And so the question he asks is not what's best or not what should I do. What's easiest for me to do? What's the easiest path for me to follow? There's some risk. There's some work involved. And what gain is there if I'm to go to try to work this and to see it increased? That is too great of a work and the risk is too much there. And so he shows his wickedness by doing this, by being useless in this sense. But he's also slothful. He's lazy. And with this idea, there's a hint of cowardice. that He's afraid. He's afraid of what might happen. He's afraid of the master. He sees him as a hard man, that he's there, that it's easier for him to do nothing. So he does nothing at all with it. But what's interesting here is that he accuses the master. That his he says, the reason I've done what I've done is because of you, because of your hardness, because of the way that you are. And so he, he blames him for his disobedience. He, and the master Accuses him by his own words, and he says, What you have done does not match your words. If you were consistent with what you had said, you wouldn't have buried it in the ground. You would have at least taken it and putting it, put it in to the bank where I could have returned some interest. I could have had some interest. After all, I could have put it in the bank, but that's not my point. My point is for you to take and to work it. And so he takes the talent from the one that is unfaithful and he gives it to him who is faithful. And we see there in verse 29, there's a principle that's really a kingdom principle for us. It reminds us in verse 29, For everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We understand that if we put to use what God has given to us, we see it grow. We see it expand. But to him who does nothing with it, even what he has been given will be taken away. And the very nature of what God has given to us, the very nature of what he has entrusted to us, is for the purpose of doing work, of doing something. And we violate its nature by burying it in the ground and not using it for its intended purposes. And then we see in verse 30, there's judgment that's there. And he says that cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. And so we see a separation there of relationship. And there's judgment placed upon the servant because of his disobedience to the master. Now the question for us that we need to ask as we look at this end, and again, if you're reading this, if you heard that in the very beginning, you might go, why so harsh? Why so severe? Why was it so necessary? One, that you take what was his and you give it away, give it to someone else who had even more. And then why do we have a picture of judgment there? Why is it that he's worthless, considered worthless and banished from him? And the punishment that he receives should have nervous. It should cause it to ask the question, why was this so severe? And we need to ask that question. After all, what did he do? What was it that he did that was so bad? Did he do anything that was really some heinous crime? Did he murder? Did he commit adultery? What was it that he did? And, of course, the point was he did nothing. It wasn't a sin of, of, of commission. It was a sin of omission. There were no serious crimes involved, but it was the fact that he did nothing with what it had given to him. And the fact that he did nothing revealed truly what he loved revealed what it was that was most valuable to him. He was faithful alone to himself. It was about him and not the master. And what Jesus is saying, there's no place in the kingdom of heaven for those who are faithful alone to themselves. The one who is truly wicked and truly slothful in the end is worthless and useless to the kingdom of God. And so we see that faithfulness looks like trusting him what he's given and doing something with it. And we see that what he really loved was revealed in the fact that he did absolutely nothing. The servant was lazy and disobedient and he tried to blame it on the master. And God's mercy and his goodness will not be used or manipulated. And we see judgment very harshly there because of the nature of what he has done. But for us, we recognize our desire is to be faithful. That if by faith we are able to, to, to put to work we see that our character is revealed and our character is refined. We find at the same time as we work that what God does in our lives is that we see our faithfulness grow, our courage grow, and we reveal what we really love. Whether we are faithful just alone to ourselves or whether we really love God and honor what it is that he calls us to, his desire to see his kingdom grow. And we see our courage and our usefulness grow in the kingdom. And even though the The fact that he was judged so harshly should kind of unnerve us. There's also great encouragement in this judgment because what we find, he is not judged, he is not judged just for inadequate yields. He isn't judged just because he brought in 50% when he should have brought in 100%. He is judged because he did absolutely nothing. And for those who are diligent to be faithful with what God has given to us, we're not going to be judged for bringing in less. Maybe then we should. But what we're going to be judged for is if we do absolutely nothing at all. And, of course, there's a sense of fear. There's a sense of risk that we have. There's not an exact clarity of how we put to use what God has given to us. And, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which we will risk certain things as we trust him, as we step out to use what he has given to us to put them to work. We might risk relationships. We might r- r- risk financial uh, kinds of gain. we might risk a variety of things, but as we do that we demonstrate and we show that the risk is so much less than the reward that's there that's possible. And so we see that there's a reward for those who seek to, to honor him to be faithful and the reward is his joy. At the same time the judgment to the unfaithful are those who do absolutely nothing who are apathetic of his cause, who don't care about what he wants and so bury the talent the gift that he's given to them in the ground. So the question for us is, how do we live faithful in this period of time? How do we do that? What's it look like for us? We need to ask the questions, right? What's it look like? Lord, will you give us wisdom to do this? See a picture here, and we desire to be like those who would hear the words of their master, well done, good and faithful servant, and so to be diligent throughout the course of our lives, knowing that he will return, whether it's in our lifetime or not, we don't know, but we know at some point we will see him face to face. And so, at the same time, to be aware aware of and concerned about what faithlessness looks like. When we're only faithful to ourselves, what that really looks like, that we truly would be aware of that time when we're slothful, where we're not interested in the things of God, when we find ourselves growing in our uselessness instead of our usefulness. But how do we do this? If you'll turn with me to Psalm chapter 90, I want to conclude with a picture here that the psalmist gives us what it looks like to live and to make use of the days that he's given to us psalm 90 i'm going to read from 12 and then we're verse 12 and then uh, look at 16 and 17. Um, it's a challenge for us to see our days in light of eternity um how is it that we make use of our days and not just live for the moment and in verse 12 we see that the psalmist writes, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Teach us as we think about it, that our days are finite. And as we look at our days, there's a sense we need to make account of them and make use of them. And what faithfulness looks like is not just wasting them and not living just for the moment, but living for the span of them and asking that God would give us wisdom to make use of the days that he gives to us. And then jump down in verse 16. What does it look like to see God's work and our work combined in some fashion? In verse 16, we see the psalmist writes, Let your work, God's work, be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And you see what he's doing there? He says, let your work be shown to us. Help us to see what it is, God, that you were doing. Open our eyes that we'd see your work and your power to our children, to the generations to come, that we would see indeed what your kingdom is about. But then he says in verse 17 is this prayer. The prayer in light of your work, Let the favor, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Help us to see who you are. And then it is a request, it's a desire that he would establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That we would look to him to take our days and to bring them in alignment with what he is doing. That in some way he will take his eternal purposes and he will take our temporal days and they will work together in unison and not at odds with one another. And the prayer is that, God, would you take the work of my hands... And would you establish him in such a way that your work is accomplished, that they would be in unison, they would work together, that they would overlap together. And that's a work that God has to do. Would you take the temporality of our days, the things that we're doing, and would you enforce it, reinforce it with what you're doing? Cause what we do to be for your good. Enable us to make decisions that would honor you. Enable the work that we do to be established for your purposes alone. And we see the challenge and the encouragement for us is that's something he will do. We can't do the accounting. We can't make it happen. It's something that he does. But he gives us this gift. He says, invest it. This is what faithfulness looks like. Be careful of doing nothing with it. Put it to work. Trust that I'm able to take this, what I've given to you. I'm able to make something good out of it, to expand my kingdom. And the great image for us, the vision for us is standing before him, receiving from him the honor and praise that he deserves that we give back to him and entering into the joy that he gives to us let's pray heavenly father we are grateful that there is reward but this reward is not it's you and so I pray that we would work with that in mind would you help us to see the value of these words of receiving them from you well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master and that would delight us and motivate us in a way would cause us to be diligent over the course of our lives to do this father enable us to to be faithful and that you would establish the work of our hands father there's very very many needs in, in our congregation and i pray again that you would use all that takes place in and through us to to accomplish your work here Father, we pray for Debbie Andrews and, and her granddaughter and their family who's uh, recovering and dealing with um, uh, really being um, almost drowned. We pray that you would help her to recover, that you'd bring healing to her, restore her, and be with the family and comfort them as well. Father, we thank you the, the Barnabas crew as they take off this week. We pray that you would enable them, uh, you would establish the work of their hands this week, that you would help them to do what you've called them to. Pray that you'd use them there as they serve and that they would take great joy and delight in that. Father, we pray for um, Jenny Terrell and Kelsey Lang as they head for uh, different places of ministry, uh, Ethiopia and then as well to uh, Nebraska, that you would be with them and, and strengthen them. Father, we thank of other missionaries that we've had a chance to, to support and be uh, involved with. Pray for Scott and Jane Quidon, Croatia. Father, would you be with them in their ministry and strengthen them, strengthen the work of their hands there. We pray as well. Um, We think of uh, Brad and Amy Supple, just seeing him this last week, that you would be with them in their ministry um, as well as they're back here in the States. Encourage them. And Father, help us just to to walk with you. Help us to uh, truly long to receive those words from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.